Welcome to a Halloween special edition episode of the Wildlife Explorer podcast, full of myths, legends and ghosts. Lock your doors, shut the curtains and settle down for some spooky Essex tales. Halloween has its roots deep in time, with origins traceable to the Celtic celebration of Samhain. This day marks the end of summer and the beginning of the dark, cold winter days ahead. It was believed that on October 31st, the ghosts of the dead returned to Earth. People were afraid of these otherworldly beings, fearing they were here to destroy their crops and harm their animals but they also believed their presence made it easier for the Druids or Celtic priests to make predictions about the future. For a people entirely dependent on the volatile natural world, these prophecies were an important source of comfort during the long, dark winter. Huge sacred bonfires were lit and people gathered to burn crops and animals as sacrifices. When the celebration was over, villagers relit their hearth fires from the sacred bonfire to help protect them during the coming winter. Like many other tales from long ago, information across the centuries passes down like Chinese whispers, leaving us to never fully know which parts are true and which parts are myth. And today, we're going to be looking at some myths and legends of our own. Darren Tansley, our Wilder Rivers and Protected Species Manager, has been trying to get to the bottom of two intriguing Essex wildlife mysteries. From a scourge of mice with venomous teeth, to the slaying of a dragon. Can he get to the bottom of what was really going on? Hallowtide last passed in the marishes of Denji Hundred, in a place called Southminster in the county of Essex. A strange thing happened. There suddenly appeared an infinite multitude of mice, which overwhelming the whole earth in the said marishes, did shear and gnore the grass by the roots, spoiling and tainting the same their venomous teeth. In such sort that the cattle which grazed thereon were smitten with moraine and died thereof. As unbelievable as it may seem, this is a word for word account of an incident that apparently took place in the Denji Peninsula on the evening of Halloween 1580. A multitude of venomous mice overwhelming the marshes and killing all the cattle seems a bit far-fetched though, so is it possible to work out what was really going on and solve this Halloween wildlife mystery? I decided to take a look at some of the small mammals living in my own garden to see whether they could shine a light on what these deadly creatures could have been. So hedgerows are great spots for looking for small mammals, especially ones that burrow. Uh, There's usually lots of vegetation there, so they feel quite safe from predators. And also a lot of food, different sorts of plants. And certainly down here, we can see that there's been some activity. 
When I reviewed the overnight footage, the hedgerow was alive with wood mice, bank voles, and even a large brown rat. And these are typical small mammals for that sort of habitat, but were they responsible for the account I'd uncovered? Brown rats weren't around in the 1580s. They actually arrived in the coastal ports of Britain in the mid-1700s, so they certainly couldn't have been responsible. Wood mice, well, they can live in habitats outside woodland, although they don't tend to get up to those sorts of numbers. And bank voles are very much restricted to woodland and hedgerow. So what was I missing? Well, there is another small mammal living in the garden, but it's not in the hedge. It's a specialist of long grass and wildflower areas, and a larger cousin of the bank vole. It is the field vole. So even though I mow the lawn, I mow it quite high so that there's still plenty of length on the grass and I leave these patches where we've got some really decent wild flowers and of course these are perfect habitat for field voles so when you start to actually poke your way around and, and have a look under the undergrowth you start to find little field vole feeding stations so just areas where the voles have chopped up vegetation and they've been feeding. So we've got a few leaves here as well which have been um, nipped off. Around the trees I again leave patches of um, longer grass and here we've actually got a burrow. So there's a burrow right next to the tree and having a look a little further along there's a really quite substantial field vole feeding station here. So the thing that is unique to field voles is the habitat they live in. It's very open grassland areas. They are hunted by barn owls and other predators and in a good vole year when there's a lot of voles around these barn owls are very successful in breeding and so you'll have large clutches of barn owls then to look for food the following year. So, as these predators spread out and start to hunt the voles the following year, the vole numbers go down because there's so many predators around. If the vole numbers go down, the predators can't feed and breed successfully, and so their numbers then drop off the following year, and the vole numbers increase. And this vole cycle happens over a five-year period, a sort of peak in population and then a drop away. And in addition, and this is why it's so different to the bank vole, which has a constant food supply, the very grass that the field voles feed on starts to produce silica when it's overgrazed. And this silica makes it much less nutritious. And so the voles have to forage further and further to find the same amount of food. And so the density of voles goes down. So these factors create this amazing spiral of population and you can imagine in a really good year for grass and when the voles have got a really good breeding population on, suddenly they can expand to huge numbers and what's known as a medieval vole plague would occur. So this 440 year old Halloween mystery has a very natural explanation. The talk of venomous teeth is of course completely wrong. However, the sheer numbers of voles may have stripped the marshes of all the vegetation and that would most certainly have led to cattle starving for lack of food. But not all medieval wildlife mysteries are so easily explained. A 20th century stained glass window in Wormingford Church on the Essex-Suffolk border depicts a fantastical tale from the Middle Ages. 
Local folklore recounts how a great dragon or insect appeared in the mere, a large lake near to the river store, and so terrorised the local community that they tried to pacify it by offerings of virgins. When this failed, they tried in vain to slay it with arrows, but these bounced off its scaly hide. Word was eventually sent to Sir George of Laomani, son of Eustace, Earl of Boulogne, and he arrived on horseback, lance in hand, and legend has it he slew the creature somewhere between the river and the area known as Bloody Meadow. This sounds like something from a nightmare fairy tale, but there is a possible, if somewhat tenuous, explanation. For his support of Lusignan's claim to the throne of Jerusalem, the King of England received the gift of a cockadrill or serpent whilst on his military campaigns in the Adriatic. At the time, this curious beast was very young, but as the king travelled back to England, he was imprisoned by Leopold, Duke of Austria, along with his crocodile. By the time of their release and return to England, the beast was getting much larger and so was lodged in a cage in part of the Great Menagerie at the Tower of London. It continued to grow, eventually became so large it was able to smash the cage to pieces and slipped away into the waters of the Thames. Despite offers of rewards, it was never recaptured, and speculation is that it made its way along the Essex coast, into the river store, and met its eventual fate at the hands of Sir George. At the time, the village was called Wither Munderford, but it was renamed, and although the name has evolved over the centuries, the word worm, meaning a serpent or dragon, has endured to the present day. Was this the first record of a wild crocodile in Essex, or just a tale to scare children at night? Perhaps some wildlife mysteries are best left to legend. Fascinating stuff. Well, they don't call you the wildlife detective for nothing, Darren, do they? So, you're walking home late at night and suddenly you hear this. You could be forgiven for thinking someone was in serious trouble. But this is actually a fox barking. Their eerie call can really give you a fright when you're not expecting it. Lots of things in nature are good at giving us a scare given the right situation. Slow worms can detract their tail, leaving it wiggling on its own to distract predators. Himalayan balsam fires its seeds out with surprising force at the slightest touch. Hence why it's so difficult to eradicate. Stinkhorn mushrooms create a horrendous stench to deliberately attract flies towards it. Dead man's fingers fungi can quite literally look like, well, dead man's fingers clambering up from below the earth. And even seagulls can be scary at times when they're after your chips. So on today's What Three Birds feature... Let's hear some of the bird calls that might stop you in your tracks this Halloween. First up is the raven. Superstitions around ravens are a complex one. In history, they have been viewed in some cultures as a bad omen and have an association with death due to the fact they are carrion eaters and because of their eerie call. In other cultures, Ravens are seen as good luck. 
ravens can mimic human speech, and this ability has seen them associated with insight, prophecy, and wisdom. In truth, ravens are wonderful birds, clever, resourceful, and beautiful. But it's true, their call can be a little on the macabre side. Next up is the curlew. The sound of the curlew is actually quite beautiful, but it does have a haunting quality to it, especially when heard in the distance over a salt marsh or expansive grassland, which it favours. Curlews are attractive birds about the same size as a female pheasant, with mottled brown and grey feathers, long bluish legs and a distinctive long down-curved bill, perfect for hunting for prey in the mud. And lastly, the eeriest of them all, the barn owl. Outrageously beautiful, with a butter-wouldn't-melt heart-shaped face, these pin-up stars of the wildlife world are pinpoint-accurate hunters. With snow-white feathers, they soar silently above farmland and grassland. Everyone wants to spot a barn owl, but many never get to see one due to their mainly nocturnal behaviour and secretive nature. If you hear one, though, it can give you quite a start in the dead of night. So now we've heard a barn owl, let's find out a bit more about them. Jeremy Dagley, our Director of Conservation, took a trip to Abbots Hall Farm Nature Reserve to see if he could spot one, and talks about how they got one of their nicknames, the Ghost Owl. It's a beautiful evening here at Abbots Hall, Essex Wildlife Trust's headquarters, and I'm Director of Conservation, Jeremy Dagley. And I'm out tonight and I'm looking for ghosts. It's the most beautiful evening. After rain this morning, tonight is calm. And as we approach Halloween, the sky is quite a lurid red, rather fittingly. And I'm out here looking for ghosts. Well, I've just walked on a bit further and time's moved on a little bit and the that red sky has turned to peach and the beautiful luminosity across the whole of the, the rest of the sky now lit up by where the sun has just set. And I can hear lowing of cows. I can hear waders come to roost. 
on the Blackwater Estuary just down to my right. As I look across the sky, I see a buzzard rather hurriedly flying into roost, slightly uncertain of itself as it gets pretty dark. And we're into that wonderful period of the day which many of us who watch birds for a long time know as the crepuscular, the time when dusk moves in, creeps over the land, and it's only those birds with the enlarged big eyes that can now see well enough to hunt. And of course those ghosts I was looking for are in fact of course owls and in particular the wonderful barn owl, an animal that uh, has a face that's almost human because it has those large dark eyes that are forward facing in an angel face, beautiful heart-shaped white face. There is nothing more human-like almost amongst the bird world than the face of a barn owl. And I'm sitting here waiting just across in the long grass, just hoping that uh, we might be lucky enough to get one coming over and hunting this evening across the long grass, which of course is the, the habitat that they favour for the field vole, which is their major prey. So many of the calls of birds in the evening sound that extra urgent, more plaintive than they do during the day. I can hear red shank and oyster catchers moving across the backwater and into the tributaries and the creeks. They just sound that bit more lonely, that bit more concerned. And that is what sets up owls to have this reputation, not only ghostly, which I'll come to in a minute with the barn owl, but also, of course, that association with death and evil. Because, of course, they can hunt when we can't see. They can hunt not only in the dusk, but in the dark, in the depths of night. And that makes them otherworldly in so many ways. But, of course, the barn owl escalates that otherworldliness to heights that many other birds don't reach. It's got a most beautiful soft outline. It's pure white underneath. And when it flies, well, floats through the air, its edges seem to blur into the dusk sky. It doesn't seem to have an edge. It doesn't seem to have a complete shape. And that, along with that face, those staring eyes, the ability to appear and then disappear in complete silence because its feathers are so arranged on its wings that there is no rubbing between the feathers and bone, between the feathers of the wing and the feathers of the body. That complete silence also takes it into another realm. And I'm sharing the track that I'm walking along at the moment with uh, a couple of rabbits and a muntjac, but still no sign of an owl. I'll just go and try in another field. Oh wow, and as if by magic, just as I come back towards Abbot's Hall itself, a barn owl has just silently flown over my head and past the willows and into the field where I was looking, where the long grass is. It's off for its nighttime hunt and I'm uh, now going to go back and just see if I can 
catch it going across the field. Another fleeting glimpse and it's just gone over a hedge. But I can't suppress my excitement. Even though I've been lucky enough to see barn owls many, many times, there is nothing like it seeing it come out from nowhere, utterly silent and floating over your head. And the fact that tonight I could be fairly sure of seeing one is a testament to the fact that the decline that was started back in the 50s and 60s, probably through toxic chemicals being used, killing uh, insects and birds around and particularly the mammals through rodenticides saw a huge decline in barn owl numbers and they reached their low point probably in the 1990s when I'd begun my career in conservation and we really thought they could keep on declining. And so it's a massive success story for conservation and for farmers and landowners all around the country that barn owls have got recovered from that massive decline to see something like a 250% increase since 1995. Now there are 9,000 pairs across the UK and they're breeding well and they've bred well particularly this year with broods of normal or above average size and indeed clutches of up to nine eggs on our own reserve at Blue House Farm. And the worry about toxic chemicals to some degree has faded. Hard winters have come back and possibly taken numbers down a little bit but they are back in great numbers. And one of the success stories that probably brought them back from that, what seemed like a very long terminal decline, was the provision of nest boxes. Over 25,000 nest boxes have been provided across the country for barn owls to nest in. In many places like the Fens in Norfolk where they never nested before. And here in Essex, the Wildlife Trust, a few years ago, completed an amazing um, barn owl rescue as it were providing nest boxes for over 300 interested landowners extraordinary numbers went up over the county and over a quarter of those were occupied and used by barn owls in the following years a real success to get them back into the heart of our countryside and to be able to see be seen regularly by people a wonderful spirit of the night that we can now all enjoy because they're not just in some rare corner of our county but they're spread right across it. So from a bird that was on the amber list of concern, we now, over the last five years, have seen it become a bird on the green list and on the up, or at least stable. And this year, as I say, has been a really successful breeding year. Lots around, and it promises to be an interesting winter. Let's hope it's not too hard and that the owls don't suffer because one of the key factors in their survival is their adult survival rate over winter. However well, however many eggs they have, however many fledglings they fledge, it's that adult survival through the winter that's the absolute key for barn owls. That's come from BTO and RSPB research. And let's hope this winter will be mild enough for them to make it through for another breeding season next year. Well, that's about all we've got time for today. So join us next time when we'll be talking about more creatures that go bump in the night, looking at some of our nocturnal nature. So until then, happy, happy Halloween! Halloween.